My name is David. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Grace Covenant Church, and it is my absolute privilege to bring the word tonight. Uh, we are going to uh, we're going to go through the word. We're going to look at scripture for just a few minutes, and then we're going to celebrate the baptism of some of our family. Amen. Now, it might just be that worship was very exuberant, and you're a little bit tired because you used up all of your energy. It could be that it's day one of the fast, and you're already a little hangry. But I just said we're going to baptize some of your family, and I felt like. I felt like, yeah, that's a little better. That's better. So you've got about 20 minutes to get your energy back and, um, and really be ready to celebrate because what we celebrate in baptism is that people that were once dead are now going to live forever. And what we celebrate in baptism is that people who were on the outside are now brought to the inside and they become a part of our family. They become a part of the big C church. And this is, this is no little thing. This is no small thing that Christ has done on their behalf. And it's no small thing what Christ has done on your behalf. And so you've got a few minutes to, uh, to find some energy to celebrate and to get some faith. And hopefully this sermon will, will equip you for that as well. We're in a series titled uh, Finding Jesus, and tonight we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and we're going to look at the idea of finding Jesus alive. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 says this, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached in my gospel. This is God's word to us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would awaken us to the reality of the fact that you are alive, that you have risen from the dead, and even now you're seated at the right hand of the Father, looking across all the world, looking who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, it's my desire tonight that you would wake us up to that reality, not just intellectually, but from the depths of our soul, that we would cry out to you and identify with you in your death, but also in your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wrote those words to Timothy roughly 2,000 years ago, and then 1,800 years after that, Nietzsche said, God is dead. It was this figurative statement that Nietzsche made because he believed that the Enlightenment had equipped humanity well enough that God would no longer be needed. We didn't need foolish superstition anymore. Because we could find all the answers we need. We could all find all the solution we need with logic and with reason and with our intellect. The sciences would help humanity evolve in their collective soul. And we would move beyond the, the barbaric way of thinking and the barbaric belief in the supernatural. You know, the TED Talks are built on the same idea. The founder of TED Talks... I, I, I read the, uh, a book on how to present well, and, and as I was reading it, one of the best books I've ever read on present, uh, I've ever read on presentation. And he said, he said the, the big idea behind this is that ideas will change the world. Philosophy will change the world. If only we can get these ideas about technology, education, and design out to the world, then everything will change and humanity will be made better. There's a belief that the, the development of our intellect will change the human soul. 
now 137 years after Nietzsche made that statement, I think we can confidently say that there's no amount of intellectual progress, there's no amount of technological progress that changes the human soul. But the things that we're held captive to are the same things that people were held captive to even from the very beginning that Scripture was written. We see ourselves held captive to the same bondage and the same sin as Adam and Eve. We find ourselves captive to the same hatred that caused Cain to kill Abel. We find ourselves captive to hatred and to unbelief and to bigotry and to racism. We find ourselves unable through intellectual assent to be set free from heart sickness. Anybody who's ever been in love or anybody who's ever hated will know that intellectual exercise is not enough to free the human soul. Anybody ever loved deeply? Anybody ever hated deeply? (laughs) Somebody laughed. (laughs) Somebody over here is being really honest. So it's a free Wednesday night. Nietzsche had it part right. There was a time when God was dead. There was a moment that he was dead, and it was a terrifying moment for all of eternity. At the moment that God in the flesh died, he was pierced in his side, and water and blood poured out of him. It was separated because the blood had congealed in his body. And so the, 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 the lumping qualities of blood caused the water to separate. And so liquid and separately clumps of blood would have left his body, proving that he was dead. Darkness came over the land, Matthew 27, 25 tells us. How terrifying a moment for darkness to cover the earth in the middle of the day. How absolutely terrifying would that moment have been when it got pitch black. The birds probably feared to sing in that moment. Only the silence of the death of the Son of Man hanging over top of his creation, being looked upon by the people who killed him. A veil was torn from the top down in the section that separates the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was symbolized from the rest of the earth. A thick veil that kept people from entering in and contained the presence of our God. It was torn from the top down so that it could not be mistaken that somebody tore it up on their own. As to say, Jesus has made a way. You know that song we just sang, he's, I don't know how, but you did it. I mean, we, we, I, we, I should do know how. It's through his death. It was through his death. In that moment, when God was dead, the earth shook and rocks split, making true the statement that if his disciples wouldn't cry out, the very rocks would. Graves opened. Tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and appeared to many people. The zombie verse in the Bible. The walking dead verse of the Bible. You think walking dead is entertaining? Try the Bible. 
People all excited. The Game of Thrones came out. I'll tell you what's more entertaining than the Game of Thrones. How about the Game of Throne and the one who sits on it? Zombies walking through the street. My goodness. Like, we'd clean it up, and we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. What? This is why Nietzsche needed God to be dead. Because it's absolutely terrifying to believe that there's something that exists beyond our ability to control it. This is why governments need God to be dead. Because it's terrifying to think that there's an authority and a power that rests above them. The sovereignty of a nation is really important. And anybody who's been a parent feels the futile nature of that desire. Can't even control our infants. Can't keep them from sticking their finger in the outlet. Can't keep them from throwing their rice on the floor. And for whatever reason, apartment complexes still make the dining room with carpet on the floor. Hateful. (laughs) Hateful people. Kids don't care. That's why we didn't have spaghetti and meatballs in our house for many, many years. Got to get that rent deposit back. (laughs) Safe deposit. They're like 16 when they're going to finally get to eat red sauce. Like, what is this mystery, Dad? It's red sauce, my child. Just moments after the Son of Man died, one of those who oversaw his death and those who were with him were absolutely terrified and proclaimed that surely this must be the Son of God. In the few days that followed, the Pharisees and the others who Pastor A.J. described as wanting to end Jesus' life, as wanting to take him out, would have felt a slight satisfaction knowing that they had dealt with the problem that Jesus wasn't going to cause any more trouble for them. He's been taken out. It's been terminated. We can go on about business as usual, maintain our positions of power and influence. We can say the things that we want to say and manipulate things to our own gain. We can rest in our own security and our own confidences and our own competencies. Even as the Pharisees rested with satisfaction, knowing that they had eliminated their greatest threat, hell would have looked on and thought they had done the same. They took out their greatest threat. The demons, as tormented as they are, found some solace from their torture to know that they had conquered God. And that's normally where a story ends because people don't come back to life. And some of us, that's where we leave Jesus. Some of us are inadvertently serving the Jesus who's still in the tomb. And this is what I mean. This is not an accusation. If you feel accusation, you're you're hearing me wrong in this. Some of us have so identified with our sin. And we've so identified with the death of Jesus on behalf of our sin. 
we're familiar and harassed by our weaknesses. To the point that when we remember Jesus, we remember our weakness. When we think about Jesus, we think about our failings and our shortcomings. Leaving him in the grave. We understand that Jesus had to die for our sins. But then we forget what happened next. If not intellectually, if not theologically, certainly emotionally and soulfully. To know him in his death is, is critically important because it's his death that satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. To know him in his death is, is critical because we have sinned against the holy God and that, and that sin needed to be atoned for, it needed to be paid for, and Jesus satisfied that requirement on our behalf. So he, he needs to, he must be identified on that level. Because he died, we don't have to. But unless something else happened, there's nothing else for us. He's just another good man who died. I used to play uh, soldiers with my, with my friends in the, um, in, in, the, in the yard. And, you know, we'd run around and play war games. And, and, you know, we'd shoot each other. It's when you could have fake guns and run around the neighborhood and, like, you know, shoot each other from garages and cars and all kinds of things, right? We just played like wild all over the neighborhood. It escalated to slingshots later and that ended badly. So, but that's another time. So, so we're going and, and we're playing these war games. And, and I had this friend who loved to be the one who died. <laughs> he loved to die. It was, it was remarkable. We just knew he was going to die. Because it was glorious to him. He was like, the guy who dies gets the glory. And so he made sure he died. The thing about the one that dies is that he's absolutely no use to the rest of the game because he's dead. So he would die and we'd be like, oh, he gave his life so that we could live. And now we're going to go get slaughtered because he's still dead. John is still dead, just laying there on the ground. It was dramatic. It was important. It was significant. We memorialized it, but as much as we want to celebrate what he did on our behalf, he's dead. You're already finishing the sermon in your own heart. What Nietzsche got wrong is that that wasn't the end of the story. There are these funny, um, these funny memes go around about how important grammar is. And depending on where you put the comma on a sentence, you're either saying, let's eat grandma or let's eat grandma. <laughs> it's kind of dark. Grammar's important. Thank your English teacher. <laughs> Somebody just got it. What Nietzsche didn't realize is that it wasn't a period. At the very most, it was a semicolon. It was a comma. It was an ellipse because God wasn't done. 
And I want to encourage you today that if you've identified with Christ in his death and you've identified with him and you've asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, you're, you're, you're part of the way there. You're on your way there, but we've got some new identifying that we have to do because after that comma, after that semicolon, after that ellipse, you can Google them tonight, Jesus is alive. It's important that Jesus is alive because it means that he's not just the Lord of those that are dead, but he's the Lord of those who are alive as well. He's not just the Lord over death and suffering and shame and guilt, but over all of life as well. He's not just God for those who are dead and dying, but he's there for those who are living and active. It means that he doesn't just have authority over the things that are alive, but also dead. And we need to know him in our sufferings. But what Paul is telling Timothy, that you need to remember that he's risen. And family, we need to remember that he's risen. Romans 6.1, we're going to go there for the baptisms in just a moment. Romans 6.1, or we'll say 6.3, says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism and to death, just as Christ was, uh, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, we too might walk in the newness of life. We not just identify with his death, but remember him and to know him in his resurrection. We sing that God, our, that song, our God reigns forever and ever and ever. He doesn't do that from a place of the grave. He doesn't do that from death, but he does that from life. Paul's telling Timothy to remember the resurrected Jesus and to find Jesus alive because Timothy was going to need the resurrection power of Christ in his life if he was going to accomplish what God had set him up and called him and preordained him to do. He couldn't just identify with the suffering. He needed to identify with the life to motivate, inspire, and encourage him through the tough times. He was going to have to remember Jesus and the resurrection so that he could press through the difficulty and press through the fight and press through the battle because Jesus was alive. So would he too be. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, so would he also. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, his marriages wouldn't just have to be, not his marriages, the marriages he was ministering. He didn't have like multiple marriages. That's what happens when you get excited and you get off the notes. (laughs) Marriages wouldn't have to stay in a place of death, but there could be reconciliation and hope and life and things that once seemed dead, there would be life. In in relationships that once seemed dead, there would be life. When you were tortured, there would not just be death, but there would be the promise of life. He needed to know that Jesus was alive and at the right hand of the Father and remember the Father in that place so he wouldn't walk around, oh, Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. Oh, he's forgiven me. Isn't that depressing? My Savior's dead. He's no good to us anymore. Just like John. Just dead. He saved me, but now he can't help me. He saved me from my punishment, but now what? Purgatory? No, no, no. 
He saved us in his saved us in his death and his resurrection. Family, there are some of us in here tonight who need to remember Christ and his resurrection. And I want to pray with us that we would see the risen Christ in our life. So if there's a place where you have kept Jesus inadvertently in the tomb, I want to pray with you and ask Jesus to visit that place, not as a king who's still in the grave, but as the king who is alive and seated at the hand of the Father. Amen? So if that's a place of finance, if it's broken relationships, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's terror of, of the future, if it's anxiety about current circumstance, the, the risen Christ wants to meet you in those places. First and foremost, he wants to meet you in your greatest place of shame and brokenness and guilt so that you can walk in the confidence of one who serves a risen Savior and so that the power of the resurrection can work in and through your life so you can walk confidently with courage and expectation and hope and anticipation of the coming glory of God in your life. Father, this evening, we freshly surrender ourselves to you. We ask that you, the living Christ, would come and meet us in in the most secret of places in our heart, in the most hidden places in our soul, those places where we have not acknowledged you to be the risen king, where we've settled for a partial work, God, I ask that you would awaken us to the reality of your kingdom. The power of the resurrection and the life that you have for us today. God, I thank you that your word says that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So I ask that you would release a newness of life over this room. There'd be a newness of life in our relationships. There would be a newness of life in our love for you. A newness of life with one another. A newness of life in our work. A newness of life in our suffering. God, that you would visit us. You would stir us to life according to your loving kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.